Amen. Well, if you have a Bible, go ahead and, and turn over to the book of Isaiah. This is day one, ground zero, for a brand new series for us here at Trinity. If you're visiting with us for the first time, uh, our, our practice is to take a book of the Bible and to, and to walk through it verse by verse to try to help us get an understanding of the whole thing, to, to sort of protect us from what comes natural to all of us preachers, which is to pick and choose the things that we like to study about and to leave aside the things that are maybe a little bit more challenging. And uh, it's that principle and that principle alone that has brought us to Isaiah because there's a lot in here to like and a lot in here that's challenging. And we're going to try to look at both of those things over the next 20 weeks together. Here's how one Bible scholar describes the book of Isaiah. He says this, There is no other book in either testament which comprehends the whole of biblical theology so completely as does Isaiah. That's really just an eloquent way of saying that Isaiah is one of the few books in the Bible where you can get the whole message of the Bible presented to you right there in in sort of microcosm. It's all in there. The same sort of information you could get from Matthew or from Romans or from Genesis or Exodus is all right there in Isaiah. That's the good news. The bad news, or maybe not the bad news, maybe just the challenging news, the challenging news is that the prophets, and Isaiah is definitely one of them, can be really, really hard to follow. Luther was never one to pull any punches, and here's what Luther, Martin Luther, said about the book of Isaiah, or about the prophets in general. Luther says that the prophets have a queer way of talking, like people who, instead of proceeding in an orderly manner, ramble off from one thing to the next so that you cannot make head or tail of them or see what they're trying to get at. That's what Luther said. I love that. If you've ever tried to read Isaiah, you know exactly what Luther's talking about. How many have... This is asking you maybe to say a little too much about yourself, but I'm going to ask you to be honest. How many people have started reading Isaiah and failed to get through it because of what... Wow, yes, honesty. And and, And the other half of you that didn't raise your hands, I'm a little bit suspicious of you, I'll be honest. It's hard. It's hard to push through it because of what Luther says. It's not like this nice linear step one, step two, step three, move your way through the book in the way that like a letter of Paul is. It's scattered. And it can be frustrating. I think a better image, instead of a a sort of step one, step two, step three argument, a better image that I've seen for this book and for the prophets is a kaleidoscope. You know, those things we had when we were kids that you look into and you, you sort of turn them and there's all these colors and these very specific and precise patterns moving across the screen. Or uh, a mosaic was another image that I got for it. But here's my favorite one, and this is the one I want to drill down on today. This is my favorite image for what Isaiah and the rest of the prophets are like in in the way that they move through their ideas. They're like a surround sound system. They're like a surround sound system. In other words, I don't know if you guys have these. Some of you may have a surround sound system. There's usually like five channels and, and different speakers have different jobs depending on what it is that you're watching. Uh, so in my system, there's this one in the middle that's almost only words. When people talk and there's dialogue, it comes out of that, out of that channel. If there's bullets like flying around because it's some sort of World War II battle scene, then that's usually the, ch- the, the speakers that are behind me, right? And I feel like I'm in the middle of the, of the war. 
And then like big explosions. Yeah, I'm, I'm really showing a lot about what I like to watch. <laughs> These big explosions come out of the subwoofer, which is over here, are usually kind of hidden out of sight that creates that deep bass. But it's not, the, it's not the center channel's job to create that bass, right? That's this speaker's job, and the bullets are coming from back here. Each channel has its own responsibility, but sometimes they're all going at once, right? And so you get this nice, coherent whole. You get what you're supposed to hear, but you're getting different things at, at different times and from, from different speakers, and that's exactly how the prophets get their points across. I mean, there's a nice, coherent message overall to Isaiah, but you're never going to get a clear statement of it all at once in any one place. Rather, what you're going to get as you read through is that sometimes you're getting this one, this one channel. It's all about judgment, or it's all about the bigness of God, or it's telling you about Israel's sin, or, or over here it's talking about this suffering Savior who had to come to take Israel's sins onto his back and bear them on behalf of the nation. You're hearing different things from different channels as you move through it. I think it's a great way of visualizing what I, of making some sense out of why Isaiah does things the way he does. He, he, it wasn't random for him. He was a genius. And a lot of things we won't even get to because they would take us too far into the details. If you, if you just read a basic commentary on Isaiah, you'll see that this guy was a literary genius in the way that he built it. It's just that he didn't build his story in a way that works for us Western minds that are used to, to logic and linear thinking. And so we're going to try to, what we're going to try to do in this series is identify the channels, identify the speakers. Um, we're not going to go verse by verse through the entire book. We did that with Hebrews last year. It took us a whole year to get through 13 chapters of Hebrews. Isaiah has 66 chapters that are all like twice as long as any chapter in Hebrews. So if we really wanted to go verse by verse, it would take years and years to do, and probably would just get us bogged down. It honestly would be counterproductive. So instead of that, here's our plan for this series. It's going to take about 20 weeks, which means taking us up through around May, sometime in May. And rather than try to go through the book starting at the beginning, going all the way through the end, what I want to try to do is identify the speakers of the surround sound system. I want to identify the channels through which you're going to hear messages coming. And we're going to just pick the most representative passages that, that identify or, or come through that channel. And the way we're going to do it is to break it down into four parts. I started with that quote from the Bible scholar who said that Isaiah is, is really like the whole, a summary of the whole Bible's message in one. Another way to put that is that you get all of the gospel in Isaiah. The Bible is given to us as a whole to tell us good news about what God has done for us in spite of our sin to save us through Jesus. That's why everything in the Bible is in the Bible. And that's what Isaiah is all about, this good news, about breaking down the components of it. And one of the best, one of the best uh, ways of understanding the gospel that I've seen, it's come out in several different books, is, is in four parts. The gospel is, is made up of some truths about us, or excuse, let me start with truths about God, truths about us, truths about what God has done for us, what he's promised through the gospel, and truths about how we should respond to his word if we want to, to take hold of that gospel. The gospel, to understand it, to understand the point of the whole Bible, you've got to understand those four things. Who is God? Who are we? What has God promised us? And how shall we respond to what he's promised us? And Isaiah gets at all of those questions and with some of the most beautiful and insightful passages in, in all of the scriptures. And so what we're going to do for our series is break it down that way. We're going to do sermons on God, sermons on us, sermons on God's promised redemption, and sermons on how we should respond to his word. And that's how we're going to do it. Fortunately, th those same four divisions are also how that, the first chapter 
in Isaiah roughly breaks down. Not in a linear way, but in, it includes information from each of those channels. Each of the speakers is active in this first chapter. It's been described as a kind of preface to the whole book. You get this, the main themes, almost like an overture to a symphony or something. The things that we see in this first chapter are going to come back up in later chapters. So what we want to do today is walk through, or even better, pull from the first chapter of Isaiah as a way of pointing towards the speakers that we're going to try to identify in the surround sound system that this book represents. We're going to answer four questions. Who is God? Who are we? What has God promised to us? And how should we respond to it? Normally, I would read the passage that we're going to consider together, but because it's so long this morning, I'm just going to read from it as we, as we need to, as we need to pull from it. So I'm going to let you go ahead and stay seated this morning as we dive in on the first question, who is God? Who is God? comes out in verses 2 through 4. I want to read those, those three verses to us now because we're going to come back to them in, in a couple different points. Here's what they say. Hear, O heavens, give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Now, what you may notice about those three verses is they're mostly about Israel. And most of our, most of our time this morning is going to be spent on Israel because most of the whole chapter is about Israel. If, if we've identified these different speakers that go off in Isaiah, then chapter 1 is definitely mostly coming from the channel that's about Israel and about sin, about what we're like apart from God's grace. But inside these verses, there comes a way of speaking of God that actually introduces us to the, to the main theme of Isaiah. Even if, the, even if chapter 1 is mostly about Israel, God is the central character of the entire book. He is the sun around which all the planets that are coming from these other channels, around which they orbit. He is, he is like that central character in a book or in a movie that is at the heart of the story and all the other characters know who they are because of or in relationship to that central character. You know, that maybe, maybe you have the character's mother, the character's father, the character's friends. Or, but, but the character is, that character at the center is, is the thing that holds the whole story together. That's the way God is in the book of Isaiah. It's really a book about Him. And we know who we are and what He's promised us and what we should do in light of who He is. And though our passage here this morning doesn't elaborate much on it, it does contain, here's the thing I want you to notice, it does have the title that Isaiah uses most often for God. And in this title is embedded all the things he wants to say about God through the rest of the book. And the title is this, he calls God the Holy One of Israel. See that, verse 4? Israel has despised the Holy One of Israel. I want to start here because that title is so crucial. We're going to spend a lot more time on it next week, actually, and then in the two or three weeks to follow. But I want to make sure we, we understand the full weight of this title. Isaiah uses it 
over and over again all through the book. And it captures in sort of microcosm who he believes God to be. I want to break it down into its two parts. I think what you'll find is that it's, it's mind-blowing when you realize that, that both of these two components are in the same title and are, are true of the same person. The first is, he's called the Holy One. The Holy One. Um, that's going to be our theme next week and then really the next two or three weeks. But for now, let me just say that Isaiah's God is, is huge. He is uncontainable in any box. He is not submissive to any preconceived notion of what God has to be. He is not tainted by any of the evil or the transience of the world. He is outside of everything we know. He is bigger and better than anything we can imagine. And some of the most memorable passages in this book are going to be passages that describe God like that. A lot of times what Isaiah will do is he'll describe some of these gods of, their, of Israel's neighbors and he'll describe the fact that they're made out of things that you might use to cook your food with. You know, the same guy might, might cut down a tree and use part of it to fashion a god that he thinks is going is to give him good luck. And he'll use the other part to, to build a fire that he can cook his food on. He'll contrast those gods who were, who were made of things that pass away, who ultimately can't see the future. They don't have eyes to see. They don't have ears to hear. They can't respond to you with the god who is the reason anything exists at all. The God who you know, hung the stars in their place and marked out how far the oceans could come and said, no more. This God explodes any categories we have for understanding anything. And that is a huge challenge to us. It's a challenge for a couple reasons. It's a challenge to connect with Isaiah's Holy One. Because you know, if, he's, if, he's that, if, if what makes him so holy and big is that he's very different from anything else that we know, then that makes him abstract. It's hard to... It's hard to, to latch on to him. I don't feel like we do awe very well. Awe, A-W-E. Sorry for my southern accent if that screwed up that word. We're not in awe very often. Uh, I think there's a few reasons for that that we'll talk about next week. But one of the challenges for us, one of the things we're going to pray towards in our study of Isaiah is that we'll be blown away. That we'll be moved by a God that, that is made up of things that aren't true of anything else in our experience and therefore it's, it's so distant from us it's hard to latch on to that's, that's one part of the challenge the other part of the challenge of, of this big God this, this holy one this one and only God who's the reason for everything that is the other reason that's a challenge is that we are prone to being the sun in our own little solar system right we're not prone to being one of the planets that orbits the sun we're the central title character in all of our stories, right? We are the one who has friends or spouse or kids or a god or a church, a job. And those are the planets that sort of orbit us. But Isaiah is going to call us to put this God that is the Holy One and won't tolerate anyone else taking his glory at the center, not just of the world's whole history, but of our individual history, of our life, and to have everything else orbit around him. And that's a huge challenge to us. It doesn't sound right. Even for those of us who've been Christians a long time, we're going to read some passages in Isaiah that are going to sound like fingernails on a chalkboard. They're just going to hit us wrong because we've been conditioned by our culture to expect that, that our story is about us, first and foremost. We're going to pray through these challenges. I don't think these challenges are so great that we can't connect with the Holy One Isaiah wants to teach us about. Uh, God, we're just going to pray for the Holy Spirit to open our eyes and to change our hearts so that we love Him for His holiness, His bigness, 
his transcendence rather than getting alienated from this picture of God. That's the first part of his title. He is the Holy One. He's unlike anything else and unmatched anywhere else. He's the one and only God of the universe. And that's what makes the next part of the title so mind-blowing. He is also the Holy One of Israel. Maybe that didn't strike you when you first read it. But embedded in that is the truth that the whole Bible tells us about. This God who is the only reason there's something and not nothing. The God who holds everything in his own hands and is the only reason we continue to exist has reached into the world that he made and latched himself to a particular people, a people too weak to distinguish themselves among the others in the earth, too broken to be worth anything on their own, too feeble to even obey him once he's shown grace to them. The God who is the reason for everything has bound himself in a marriage in a family, to a particular people. He's the Holy One of Israel. That's an earth-shattering truth. I know it may not, be, it may not have sunk in, and it's going to take a while to sink in. It's going to be one of the challenges of the series. But it's a beautiful, life-changing truth to recognize that our, the God who is the reason we exist has become our God in a unique, distinctive, exclusive, and intimate way. It's the, it's, it's the truth that, that lies behind even verse 2, calling Israel God's children. He has made them his own. The reason that, or, or the, the, the direction of his energy is towards caring for them and providing for them like a father who gives his life to making sure that his children have what they need. Uh, others, other passages like the one we read in Isaiah 54 earlier today talk about him, talk about our maker becoming our husband. The one who made us has now bound himself to us and, and not just, not just to, to love us, but to actively protect us and promote us in the way that a husband is supposed to. Here's the truth. The God of the whole earth, with all of its resources, is committed to you if you trust him. He's pledged himself to provide for and to faithfully love his people. He's the Holy One of Israel. That's the truth we want to come to savor. God help us. That's the answer to question one. Who is God? He is the Holy One of Israel. And we're going to unpack that title at length in the weeks to come. Question two is definitely the main focus of our chapter this morning. Who are we? It's one of the most important questions any of us will ever ask. It's one of the most uh, most pervasive fixa- fixations for philosophers out there. Who are we? How did we get here? What are we here for? And that's really the question. To know who we are, we have to understand something about our purpose. What are we here for? And to ask those kinds of questions, I think, is inevitable. I think we all go there in our minds. But it's also a little bit scary. Because the idea of having a purpose, of that question having an answer that's the same for all of us, the idea of there being a reason for humans to exist, all humans, not just some. That idea comes with some baggage. It means that you just can't be whoever you want to be. It means that there is a should or an ought to who we become. It means that we've been given something that we're to strive for, that we're to be about, that our lives are to be guided towards. 
that isn't in our control, that's handed to us by the one that made us. To answer who we are is to answer what are we here for. Let me just say, if, you're, if, if, if even now already, before we even get into it, you've, you're, you're kind of the hair on, the back, on your back has stood up and you kind of bristle at the idea, one of the things we're going to try to say and, and, and show through Isaiah is that the idea of having a purpose that you're made for is liberating, not limiting. It seems like it's limiting. It means that you can't just choose who you want to be. But it's actually, it's actually wonderfully liberating to have something that you're made for and then to do it, to stick to it and not try to go beyond it. I mean, one of my favorite analogies for it is, is that of, of a train. I mean, from, the, from, from China's cutting-edge, high-speed passenger trains all the way to my son's wooden tabletop trains. Trains are built to follow a track, right? They are liberated and set free to move when they're on the rails. But if they try to get off the rails, you try to drive a train down a street or an interstate system, and it, it's, it isn't going to work. I know that sounds ridiculous, but it, it isn't going to work. You're off the rails, and so you're you may have, it may have looked like freedom to not have to stick to the rails, but once you're off of them, you're, you're ineffective. You're insecure, inept. What you're subject to is what looks not like freedom, but like frustration, disappointment. Humans, just like trains, created for a purpose, created on a track. And apart from, from aiming at that purpose... We're not free, but we're inept. We're ineffective and insecure. And the purpose that all of the Bible points us to, the reason we exist, is to image the God who made us. To be a reflection of Him and what He's like in a way that nothing else in the world is. All the world shows something of the beauty of its Creator. But Genesis talks to us about a very special purpose for humans. That unlike anything else in creation, they were made to be the image of their creator, to show what he's like, to find joy in pointing everything to him, being like a mirror that just that points back to the glory of the thing that's reflected. That we are most set free as humans when we own that that's our responsibility, that that's what we're here for. Part of imaging God and what he's like looks like trusting in his provision from Adam through Israel all the way to us. Part of what we're called to is to trust in God, to accept that he is, that he is our only hope for having what we need in life, both you know, to, to handle the problem of our sin and to handle the problem of the world that's bigger than us and that we can't control and that, 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 that requires us to have things like food and shelter for everything that we need. We're supposed to trust in him like a child trusts in a father. That's one of the ways that we image him and, and, and through our satisfaction in him give him glory. But Israel, this chapter and all of Isaiah tells us, Israel chose to leave the rails. It's a choice all of us have made. Verse 2 reads like a courtroom scene. There's the calling of the witnesses. Hear, O heavens. Give ear, O earth. There's the laying of a charge. The children that I reared and brought up have rebelled against me. Then there's evidence through the rest of the chapter of that charge. The ways in which Israel has rebelled. Really, this, this chapter's description of Israel and, and what had gone wrong with them sets up the whole book. It sets up the rest of the book. And it really starts with rebellion. Rebellion. 
That's what verse 2 charges them with. Verse 3 points out that the ox knows its owner. The donkey knows its master's crib. In other words, the most stupid of all the animals out there at least know where their bread is buttered, right? Even the ox knows that there is life in obedience. And the donkey knows that there is everything that's needed if I just trust the crib of my master. He will provide for me. But Israel made the children of the Holy One. Israel doesn't understand. They despise, verse 4 says, the one that they were made for. But how? The Bible describes our condition just in the same way it's describing Israel's here. I think all, this is about Israel at a particular time in, in place, but through our study, I think we're going to see that it really is about us too. The things that are true of them are also true of us. We have similarly despised and forsaken the Holy One of Israel. But how? How have we done that? Maybe you don't feel like you have. Maybe you don't think of yourself right now as despising Him. I mean, when you think about God right now, do you think that you hate Him? Do you see yourself as a rebel against Him? I mean, I'm just being honest. I don't often sense that about myself. I don't taste that. I kind of know that it's told to me in the Bible, and so I believe it in a certain kind of way, but I don't often sense it. And I'm guessing that some of you are in the same boat. Israel certainly would have felt this way. They would not have seen themselves as rebels. And so this chapter, and a lot of what's to come in Isaiah, is about trying to give them images of what they've done that'll help them to see, help give them an aha moment. Oh, oh, I have forsaken him. I have despised the Holy One of Israel. In this chapter, really, really quickly, there are three different images he uses to help them see how they've been guilty of this. Because Israel, like many of us sitting out here today, would not have immediately heard this and said, yep, I'm a rebel. Yes, I, I do despise the Holy One of Israel. They needed help seeing it. He gives us three images for it. Three examples that show that they've forsaken or despised the Holy One of Israel. They are empty religion, idolatry, and injustice. Empty religion, idolatry, and injustice. All in Israel's experience, all show that at root, Israel has forsaken and despised their God. Empty religion comes out in 11, verses 11 to 15. I just want to read those quickly. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I don't delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I can't endure iniquity and solemn assembly. New moons and appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my face from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. For the sake of time, I've got to summarize this really quickly. Hopefully, it came through clearly enough just, in through, just through reading these verses. Bottom line is that Israel's problem wasn't that they weren't religious enough. They would, have been, they would have heard this claim that they're rebels against God and they would have said, what? Did you see how many times I went to the temple? 
how much money I spent on animals that I sacrificed to you, how inconvenient it was for me to travel from the the distant provinces to come to Jerusalem at the right times of year and to make the sacrifices that were called for me. Look at all I've done for you. And, And you call me a rebel. That's what they would have said. The point is that they saw themselves as doing things for God. Even in the language of, you know, even in this language that emphasizes how often they were doing it, like the, 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 the many multitude of your sacrifices, your many prayers, it's like they were pouring it on thick. Even the fact that they felt like they had to pour it on thick to do more than was required of them, this passage says, shows that what they thought was, this was a sort of tit-for-tat system. That if I do these things, and as often as I do them, God, I will build up a sort of storehouse with God that he will owe me. They saw themselves as acting religiously for God to put him in their debt rather than, and this is the key, rather than the way that the Old Testament talks about law, not as a way of getting God on your side, but a way of living as those who already have God on their side. The law is always given as a response to God's grace to his people. The fact that he'd redeemed them from, for example, from slavery in Egypt The law is a response to that, not something that gets God to deliver them from Egypt. It's not something that you use to put God in your debt. And they didn't get that. So their religion was empty. It wasn't from a heart of love and affection for God, from a gratitude for the grace that they'd already experienced. It was an attempt to get God in their stead. Basically, they turned... if If God's image for how he relates to us is that of a father, they had turned their father into a sort of cosmic butler... They turned their father into sort of a cosmic butler who is there to receive the money that's owed and then do the things that are necessary. Always at their beck and call. They paid their retainer so he'd have to give them what they want. They'd forsaken him, in other words. They had despised his promise to be of Israel. And another thing, that's, that's empty religion. Another thing that comes out is, is a theme of idolatry. We're going to spend an entire week on one of the most famous passages on it, so I won't say much now. It comes up in a couple places, though, in this passage. In verse 21, for example, Israel is referred to as the, the, the faithful, what had been a faithful city has now become a whore. And in, throughout the Old Testament, that word is used religiously or spiritually for Israel's infidelity to God, that they have been sleeping around religiously, going to other gods to try to get things that they can't get from God himself from the Holy One of Israel. Other verses in this, in this section point in the same direction. The fact that, they, that their leaders who were supposed to protect the people had turned to bribes, had become thieves, shows that they were running after money as a kind of God that could give them security and they were just going to take it wherever and however they could get it. Later on there's uh, talk of the oaks that Israel desired and the gardens that they had chosen. These are probably references to nature religion of their of their neighbors. They would often find these trees that they thought were sacred places, these oaks, and they would go there to worship and offer sacrifice. That's probably what he's talking about here. That Israel is basically trying to cobble together security from wherever they can get it. And what they're showing in their idolatry is that they don't trust God is enough for them. They might still do the religious rites called for in the temple. You may as well keep God on your side if you can. But we're also going to hedge our bets you know, and we're going to trust in money or in power or in the gods of our neighbors, the things that our neighbors value and trust in. And, and, and that way, we'll come up with a sort of composite security we couldn't get just from trusting in God. 
Maybe it's even easier here to see how that is a despising or a forsaking of the Holy One of Israel. And the last place it shows up, the third example, is an injustice. Scattered throughout chapter 1, we see several examples of it, but especially in this passage we were just looking at, verses 21 to 23. Those who are supposed to protect the people have turned to bribes and gifts, and rather than bringing justice to the fatherless, they oppress them. The widow's cause does not come to them. They don't take those who are the weakest in their society and care for them in the way that God's law called them to. But they oppress them. They, they squeeze what's more is there, try to get more out of them. What they, what they show through their injustice, which we'll look at in detail in weeks to come, is that they don't trust God's provision, but believe they've got to stand on their own two feet, which means if you have the power to get something out of someone else, you do it. If they're too weak to stop you, well, that's just their problem. That's what they deserve. These are people, who, in other words, who don't understand grace. They don't understand that they need something that they can't earn. They don't understand that God can't be put in their debt and that unless God turns to them in grace, they have no hope. They see themselves as the masters of their fate. They manipulate God and everything else in their lives and therefore they may as well take what they can get from the weak. So who are we? That's the question. What can we learn from the indictment of Israel? The message is this. Let me, let me reframe it and, and wrap this point up with this. You were made to reflect the image of God, to bear witness to Him, to make a statement about Him. And whether you realize it or not, there, there's no way that you can remain neutral on this. Everything about your life, whatever it includes, whatever you value and prioritize, everything about your life is making a statement right now about God. Israel's statements in these three examples were that through their religion they were saying he'll only deliver what he owes us. It's not true that he would give us something we don't deserve. So we're going to get him in our debt. Through their idolatry they said he can't fully deliver on his promises so we're going to supplement. Through their injustice they said made a statement about him that he doesn't really care. He says he cares but he doesn't really. The question we're going to ask ourselves is what, what statements are we making about God through the way that we choose to live? through what we choose to trust in. The question we'll be asking is, what is it that we trust in? Isaiah is an expose on false trusts, on trusting in all the wrong things. And by God's grace, we'll, we'll see ourselves better because of it. The next two points, I'm going I'm to summarize in just a couple sentences uh, because they, we're going to give so much time to them. We're going to give more, more time to this third question than any other section in our study. Some of the most beautiful passages in the Bible on redemption come in answer to this question, what has God promised us? Having, having been despised by Israel and forsaken by them and by us, God could have, and the question's hanging in the balance at the end of this preface, will God just throw his hands up and be done with it all? You certainly have to understand if he did. That's how we would react. But the promise of Isaiah is that he hasn't. That he has not allowed Israel's sin and rebellion to define the relationship with his people but he has come to them with two promises, or maybe a bigger promise that has two sides to it. He's promised that he will, once and for all, remove the problem of their sin. He's going to get rid of it. This comes out in verse 18 of our passage, where Isaiah, God through Isaiah says, Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. 
Notice these images of whiteness. They're not whitewashed. They are white in essence. They are things that are white by nature. Snow and wool. He's not going to paint over our sins. He's going to get rid of them. He's going to remove them and make it as if we never were guilty of them. How will he do that? That's the question that Isaiah 53 answers so well. With its image of a, of a servant to come who will take our sins on himself. Who will substitute himself for us. And take on what belongs to us as his own and get rid of it once and for all. The, the promise is also in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 2, which we won't read for the sake of time. It's a promise that not only is God going to get rid of the, our personal sins, but when he's taken the problem of sin away, what will result is a perfect world of peace. When there's no more selfishness to drive us against each other, we will reign as those who trust God in the way we were meant to. We will reign with Him over a world in which there is no war, no violence and selfishness, in which swords are beat into plowshares, spears are made into pruning hooks. That's the world God's going to make in response to what we've done to ruin this one. That's what He's promised us. And what He calls for in us by way of response, question four, It's pretty simple. If what went wrong, if what took us off the rails was that we trusted the wrong things, what it will look like for us to come back and to experience the promises of the gospel is to trust in Him. Sin is sort of a lack of faith, in other words. Redemption means faith. Repentance is another word that's used here. It's it's saying, you know what, I'm not going to live for that anymore. Now I'm going to live like God's promises are true. I'm going to trust in him to provide for me and therefore, and therefore own his lordship over my life and not try to supplement it in all these other ways. It's going to look like repentance. And when we repent, what it looks like socially is that we start to treat each other differently. We'll start to look like the new heavens and the new earth now because we'll live by its values. When we're secure in, in God and what he offers us, we are set free to give ourselves to each other rather than demand our pound of flesh from each other. Those are the, those are the responses that we're going to tease out in, at length at the conclusion of our series. That's our plan. I hope it makes sense. I hope it sounds compelling to you. I hope that you will want to participate in it because I promise you, I promise you, even from reading the book of Isaiah, your hearts will be encouraged if you read it carefully. We're going to offer a kind of listening guide. The last thing I'll say is that in addition to these sermons, what could help you in your study of Isaiah is this commentary. This is one of the main ones that I'm using. It's written by a guy who wrote one that's pretty long and in-depth, a technical one, and then a few years later decided to write one for folks who weren't interested in more of the technical details. That's just much more concise and to the point, very readable. I've got several of these on the resource table back here. would love for you to grab one. Every week, the, the sermon text for the week is on the website early in the week. You can go find out what it is and spend some time reading about it ahead of time and, and use this, a commentary like this one to try to get your mind in the right place to hear these sermons and benefit from them. That's just a nice word of practical advice before we dive headfirst into Isaiah. God, help us. We pray, Father, that you would speak to us through what you've spoken and that you would protect us and sort of insulate us from the weaknesses that all of our minds are held back by. We just, we just struggle so much to connect with ideas that are outside of our experience. and We, we struggle to accept ideas that challenge 
what we think is right. And, and Isaiah is so full of material like that that we won't persevere through it and won't benefit from it unless your spirit gives us eyes and ears to see and to hear and hearts that will love what we hear. That's what we pray for, for the sake of your name. We want to glorify you through our reception of this book in Jesus' name. Amen.